This episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club is an audio version of an episode originally made for YouTube. To see the original with any pictorial references, please visit www.youtube.com slash folklore podcast and click on the book club playlist. Hello, I'm Mark Norman, the creator and host of the Folklore Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club. Today it's my pleasure to speak to author Roger Clarke about his book, A Natural History of Ghosts, a book which the Sunday Times called beautifully written, lithe, complicated and hugely rewarding. Enjoy the episode. Uh, Roger, thank you so much for taking the time to join me and talk about your fascinating book. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. No, no problem at all. So your book, A Natural History of Ghosts. Yes, I bought this from a bookshop who didn't (laughs) have those stickers that you can peel off without leaving a mark. Yes, why do they do that? Yes. No, no, naming no names, but yes, horrible. Um, this is, let's be honest, a book that um, any self-respecting ghost researcher or even folklore researcher ought to have on their shelf. I'm pleased to say I've had Thank it you. on my shelf for a number of years. Uh, <laughs> and it is a book that I know you always wanted to write. I mean, you, you say yourself, you've had quite a rich and varied writing career. You've written film writing for The Independent you, you know, um, and, and other publications. You've had fiction published with Pan Horror and Fontana yeah. from a very early age, in fact. Yes, from the age of 16. And if, if I learned to read and write at five, so I published a ghost story in Pan within 10 years of learning to read. So it's, it's was, a pretty impressive. I just realised that actually. Yeah, yeah. But you had <laughs> a pretty, you had a pretty impressive person, uh, you know, on your side for that, didn't you as well? Oh, you mean Roald Dahl? Yes. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, I again, I didn't know him through any sort of family means or professionally. I just wrote him a fan letter, and he corresponded with me a bit, and he was. He wrote me this wonderful letter, which I still have, which is handwritten, and it tells you how to write a short story. It's like one page in his handwriting, and how and what Hemingway taught him, and the art of writing is rewriting. Anyway, it's it's one of my favourite things that I own, and um, and then um, it, it, some of his responses were a bit tetchy because he was kind of like that. It's fine, <laughs> and then I sold a story to Pan and then I sold I sent a a, a subsequent third story to both Pan and Fontana and they both accepted it and I so I was in trouble and so I wrote to him and he immediately asked his agent to intervene so (laughs) it was great because I was a sort of a very unhappy teenager I was suffering from illness and uh, depression and so everything was going into my writing and this was just such an amazing validation uh, yeah. of, of who I was and my imaginative process and 
my escape from being bullied at school and and suddenly these amazing people were taking me seriously so yeah it really was a fantastic start wasn't it to have for yeah, a writing yeah. career but but despite all that the this book natural history of ghosts is the book that you said you always wanted to write now tell us why I, that is i know that's such a sort of terrible cliche um but it, it it actually does happen to be true and basically i lost my job at the independent i was writing film uh, interviews and uh, three actually three columns a week at one point and I lost my job during one of the many contractions of the broadsheet market and I didn't really know what to do and I met an old friend who was a, a publisher and and we met at a Chinese restaurant had dim sum and I went through 10 ideas I should write and this was the 10th idea but I said it to him as an afterthought because the title, A Natural History to, of Ghosts, came to me at that instant, that actual instant. Hmm. And I said, oh, yeah, this is, okay, this is crazy, but there's this last idea I had, because all of them were very sort of predicated on my career as a film journalist. And so I, it was just a kind of curveball crazy idea that came into my head. This title, A Natural History of Ghosts, came into my head, and I just said it. And he said, yeah, that's it, <laughs> that's it. And, uh, and this is why I'm very, I'm particularly attached to the, the title of the book. And I, I, I had a sort of falling out with my American publisher who wanted to, to change the title. And I have a sort of totemistic attachment to the title. I feel it was like a gift uh, from whoever, whatever. Mm. Um, and it, everything just fell into place. I wrote it and it all just came together um, as a child, I, I mean, I, I, I grew up in a haunted house and then as a teenager, we moved to an, an even more haunted house. Um, and so I sort of, and we lived, uh, so I kind of grew up in this atmosphere of haunted houses and I was just very obsessed with ghosts and everything from a very early age, but, but more, not just um, ghost paranormal stuff, but sort of folklore, which was, and, and to some extent, I, I am and remain a folklorist. Um, I'm not really all that interested in improving whether ghosts exist. I think it's we've come to the point where it's actually irrelevant whether they exist or not. And I'm, you know, I, I discuss photography and things like that. I, I just don't. I'm not sure that that's what's interesting about ghosts. I think I wanted to write a book about ghost stories where mm. the most interesting thing was weren't the ghosts which is always assumed but the people yeah the people who yeah. see the ghosts what what happens to them and what happens after the ghost stories you know what happens when everything closes down everyone goes home the crowds go home the courtiers from charles the first court go home or whatever charles the second what happens then how does you know um and I thought, you know, that's actually what's interesting. And I also wanted to write a book where I didn't ever say whether I believed in ghosts or not, because I half believe and I half don't, uh, which I think is what most people are like. You know, yes, I kind yeah. of want to believe, but I've never seen one. Um, and I still want to believe. And so my, I have various answers when people say, you know, do you believe in ghosts? I, some, I say, sometimes occasionally or i say you know my 
heart believes and my head doesn't. Mm. And that sort of remains my my position. Um, but I'm I'm sort of interested in the whole cultural aspect of ghosts and yeah. the storytelling aspect of ghosts and how people interact with the whole idea of ghost stories. Absolutely. I mean, as you say, for a, for a folklorist, it doesn't actually matter, does it, whether ghosts exist no. or not? What what's of interest no. to us is is those experiences that people mm -hmm. are having, why they have them, and why often. Yeah shared experiences across long periods and, and, and the kind of emotional resonance of it and yeah. occasionally intellectual resonance of it you know um, that that for me is far more interesting mm. and i get i kind of get slightly annoyed when people use paranormal and supernatural as synonyms because they're completely different they mean completely different things yeah so people a lot of people call themselves paranormalists or in fact supernaturalists and it's very important to understand the difference. Yes, yes, it really is. Um, yeah. Now, now you, your, the subtitle of your book is mm. 500 Years of Hunting for Proof. Okay. Yes. Uh, now, now, walk us through very, very briefly uh, what you're covering across the chapters in this book, across that kind of 500 yeah. year period. Okay, so the first thing to say is the subtitle was slightly imposed on me by my editor and i kind of went along with it so it's not my idea that subtitle but it sort of serves its, its purpose it slightly positions the book um what i wanted to 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 look at uh, and i go into detail in the book which is number one and i realized this at an early age and in fact corresponded with peter underwood about it that there are clearly different kinds of ghosts. Um, I think I've come up with about eight in the book, but I think there are actually more than that. I've come up with about 12. And so if you say, you know, uh, what, what a, do ghosts exist? You have to say, well, what kind of ghost? You know, what are we talking about? Is it a sort of traditional apparition? Is it a sort of stone tape? Is it a poltergeist? Is it a sort of elemental demonic, you know, all these different subsections? Is it an animal ghost? Is it a ghost of an inanimate object like a car or a bus? Um, there's so many. Uh, is it a, a sort of um, a, a, a sort of ghost which has, well, it's a sort of repeating ghost, a stone tape. Anyway, all those different categories. Yeah, so I tried to look at it and I realised also what ghosts were and what people wanted from ghosts, which is a very important thing. What do mm. people want from a ghost? Uh, which kind of change, and you can see it quite clearly, the change in what ghosts do in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, they, and, uh, and they have, seem to have a different function. They seem to do different things, appear in different kind of places. Um, so there, I got very interested in, in in that and you know their origins in a kind of religious sphere and then the eclipse of catholicism and then the resurgence of you know catholic emancipation in the 18th century and the various emancipation acts uh, and that which corresponded with the rise of gothic mm. fiction and how so much of uh, the british experience of ghosts was just a, a fear of resurgent catholicism that people were afraid of mm. it wasn't actually a 
a spectre coming out of the tomb. It was actually the Catholic Church. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the, the fear wasn't always of the supernatural. That was just how it manifested. Yeah, it? yeah. yeah. Now, you cover some quite well-known cases in this book. So I'm just scanning down the contents page. And obviously, you have like, the, the Brown Lady of Rainham Hall is a very well-known yeah. case. Um, and you, I know you touch upon the Screaming Skull at Bettiscombe Manor. Yes, which I've actually over. held in my hand. Well, I mean the box, not the actual skull. But yes. Bettiscombe, yes. yeah. <laughs> There's some great stories there. Um, but, but you do cover, so, you know, a very broad range of lesser known stories as well, didn't you? How, how did you go about collecting and choosing what to include in this? Well, I, I, one of the things I did is I, I read up all of the kind of academic work being done on, yes, the Tedworth drama and, uh, and the ghost of Mrs. Veal. And so I'm very, and I absolutely acknowledge it in the book, how beholden I am to all sorts of academics for basically teasing all this material out of sources. Uh, and the, the, suddenly uh, there was some kind of point about 20 years ago where the folkloric became an acceptable subject of mm. study. And I, I kind of felt that all this work had been done by these amazing academics, uh, but they it hadn't necessarily translated to a public sphere. And I, I thought part of my job was to uh, translate some of this research, this research in academia into a sort of popular way of, you know, into a language that people can understand and with a sort of love and understanding of of spooky stuff mm -hmm. you know which maybe academics a bit in my experience a little bit worried about you know and i had no qualms mm. about going for it um and I, i've become quite friendly with a number of academics since um and so i'm very proud of that and i've always always acknowledged my debts to them and the help they give me Mm. And it's it's been quite a congenial relationship. But but although you're using a lot of academic sources, the, your material is is written in a far more accessible way, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, so yeah, I mean, you're you're pitching this very much at a at a kind of lay audience. Well, yeah, point. and uh, and a lot of I mean, a lot of academics can't write very well. <laughs> I mean, they can, you know, and it's. You know, it, they just, they're not very necessarily all that. And a lot of, if you read PhDs and so forth, or if you've written, indeed written one, they're very, almost like legalese. They're, you mm. know, everything has to be, you know, uh, inflected and all is that. Um, I mean, everything has to be accounted for. Yes. So you can't do any flights of fancy. You can't say anything a bit mad or a bit expressive, which is in fact what people like about, you know, gothic and ghost stories and folklore. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely. A bit, a bit mad, you know. So I just felt I was kind of unleashing these stories, and there'd also been so much work and digital uh, work on, you know, newspaper sources, which mm. again had not really, when I wrote the book in, you know, about 2010, 10 onwards, had not was not really all that well known. I mean, it's now much better known. But all these amazing uh, newspaper archives and just all this, all the stuff about, uh, you know, these kind of mobs, these ghost mobs in Victorian London and mm. sort of 5,000 people turning up in a churchyard. And I, I just thought, what? 
how does no one know about this? This is absolutely astonishing. Oh yeah, yeah. There's some yeah. There's some real kind of gold, isn't there, in those yeah, old yeah. stories as well? Have you got any particular favourites? I mean, you cover a lot of ground in this book. Well, I think my favourite one is the you know Mrs. Manning, who you know, who is you know the famous murderess, and just people turning up uh, in uh, um, the you know looked outside the house and looking at her. Anyway, the famous the famous French murderess, you know. Um, I, I think that's a favourite, and but just you know, every time, every now and again, I sort of find myself walking past St Giles or something, and I suddenly remember, oh yes, a ghost mob turned up there and kind of pounced on someone. It turned out to be a distressed mother guarding the grave of her son from resurrectionists. Yes, yeah, <laughs> or, or or the kind of Hammersmith ghost which was just a poor bricklayer who was wearing you know white clothes and had been warned about it mm. and was mur murdered you know because uh, people get a bit sort of uh, they're, they're kind of i don't do i mean the whole cock lane ghost and the sort of relationship between alcohol intoxication and so forth and ghosts is quite interesting i don't i haven't, didn't really write about that much but i did a sort of extra thing about the cock lane ghost in the 14 times which you know if i do a future edition if i'm asked to kind of revise the book i'll put in i discovered that there'd been a kind of gay sex scandal about two doors down just a few months earlier which mm. the king knew about and and just the way that this idea of um, and the whole bartholomew fair and this idea of social disorder uh, was was very interesting and you get that a bit with the ghost mobs too and how much the city authorities feared these kind of mobs of really um, well-oiled uh, merry people i mean basically going out on a ghost hunt mm. and things are not all that different now really just it's just a matter of scale Yes, it is, and the way that these things are covered as well, isn't it? And you and you do yeah. you do address that as well towards the end of the book, where you where you talk about kind of um, technological stories, for example. And yes, to TV investigation of the paranormal. Well, there's always been this absolutely, you know, well at least from the it's certainly from the 18th century, this absolutely irreducible connection to technology uh, with ghosts and um and the way ghost photography recording machines but all those uh, sort of 18th century sort of magical shows using illusion and so forth and you know pepper's ghost a bit later um and, and people sort of wanted to be fooled and entertained uh and then you know almost as soon, almost as soon as photography was invented um it was, or, or, or indeed, cin you know, cinematography and film. It was its its ghostliness was immediately understood, mm. um, and uh, again, very interesting. And you know, one of the first, you know, reviews of moving pictures in in, in sort of. 1890s Russia were all about was sort of preoccupied with how you know one day all these people will be dead and yet what we're seeing are their sort of ghosts before the fact and um, 
So that was almost like one of the first ever reviews of a film, you know, was immediately talking about the ghostliness. And I talk a bit about my... Go on. I talk a bit in my book about this sort of very interesting period in the 1890s where in London you've got sort of modern cinema and um, x-rays almost like vying for customers so which is why you get some of these very early films which are often about skeletons and headlessness acephaly um, and when you realize that um, that the originally x-rays were like really a form of entertainment Mm. And, and with, I mean, it sounds ludicrous now, um, but um, and there was this sort of strange bleeding between, you know, the idea of the skeleton and, uh, and the film and the X-ray, and people would literally uh, move through these extremely powerful crude X-rays, um, and so they could see each other's skeletons moving. I mean, this was, you know, and there's there's literally like a few months in the history of cinema where you can see moving pictures treating x-rays as a rival <laughs> and just bringing on the skeletons uh, it's, it's you have to wonder don't you whether some of the things that we find these days as entertainment are going to be seen in such a bizarre way in in a hundred years time to the way that we look back at things yeah as being but also that that same period, the invention of, of radio and how unbelievably freaky it was hearing voices from the ether. Yes. In a way that we can't even begin to understand. It was sort of terrifying and mm. horrifying. And it seemed to prove kind of ghosts for a while that, you know, you could just pick up signals and this idea of mental radio, um, was very powerful right up into the sort of 1920s. Mm. If, if you could just tune your mind, you would pick up these, these etheric signals. And of course, some of these technologies and some of these techniques are, are used now by um, those who identify as paranormal investigators, for example. And you do cover in the last chapter of the book that kind of paranormal investigation as entertainment phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Now, I, mean, I, I don't want to particularly name any one program or any one <laughs> style. There are plenty yes. of them these days, after all. Yes. Um, but do you think that that whole aspect brings anything positive to, to this field? Um, and, and if so, what does it bring? Um, I, I do worry increasingly, I mean, to begin, to begin with, it was quite innocent, and, but I do worry increasingly about the commercialization of it and also quite often people being taken into what are actually quite unsafe environments. Of, so, you know, damaged and falling down buildings and, and also this obsession with sort of asylums and prisons, I find really bizarre, you know, but that's it's all part of this sort of gothic aspect of mm. it. I mean, I do, I do feel that, you know, I was just thinking of the, when, when these various acts of parliament came in to deal with fraudulent mediums, um, because it was felt that they were taking advantage of the bereaved. Mm. And sometimes 
I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but there is an aspect of some of these very commercial shows that are big money spinners. There's a sort of taking advantage of people and that does worry me. But I mean, if it's just sort of almost like Halloween fun, which is mm. kind of what it proposes itself to be, then why not? I've always been very careful never to, to criticize ghost hunting, but sometimes I, I do think that it doesn't, you know, it's not quite honest about what it's doing. It's not trying to prove that ghosts exist. You, can, you know, you can't prove that ghosts exist with a photograph or a video. You know, yeah. it's just ridiculous. You know, I think if people it's, need to stop thinking that. Yeah, I guess if it's treated in the way that it's intended by some people, so that's as entertainment in whatever form. Yeah. I mean, dark tourism these days is, is, is a form of entertainment. Ghost hunting is definitely... Well, well there's a legal obligation yeah I mean, as you know i'm sure you know there's a legal obligation by ofcom to you know treat say this is for entertainment this isn't real yeah. uh, and so at one point i was going to go on one of the weekend morning shows um to talk about my book and quite a famous one i won't mention which one but it was a very famous one and they kept humming and hawing, and in the end, they were actually so worried that they were going to breach Ofcom rules that they wouldn't let me on. I kept trying to explain to them, "Look, I'm not. I've got nothing to peddle. I'm just a sort of cheerful, skeptic, skeptical believer. I'm interested in in people, the people aspect of ghosts." But they were they were really terrified about Ofcom and getting censored. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? But but I, I, to my mind. The, the one positive to take from it is that it keeps interest in the field alive. That's, yes. And it's, it's sort of, and I, I admire the sort of imaginative process that in, it, it's sort of one of the few things in the world at the moment, which is about imagination, hmm. you know, and, and, and sort of feelings and, uh, but yes, I just, I, I just, I, I just wish sometimes that people did a bit more kind of reading on on the subject, you know. Yeah. And I, I do notice, and, and as a sort of film critic for 20 years, that most people get nearly all their information about ghosts from Hollywood movies. Mm -hmm. and, and they repeat all this stuff with absolute certainty that this is sort of established, yeah. uh, you know, well, not exactly truth, but this is what everyone believes in. And that's actually not at all. And that leads me on actually to the to the last point that I wanted to cover, which is that obviously the majority of this book is looking at um, recorded cases of alleged hauntings, the way they were mm -hmm. presented, the way they were investigated and so on. But then right in the middle of the book, you have a chapter called The Ritual of the Ghost Story, mm. which, which uh, also kind of looks at that kind of crossover, doesn't it, between between writing of ghost stories mm. and the kind of you know investigation of alleged stories that the rest of the book is looking at um mm. where do you see that crossover between um the non-fiction aspect of the ghost story and the fictionalized aspect lying well i think i mean almost the sort of it, 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 this the whole idea of mr james hurriedly writing a ghost story at christmas for his friends or or the choristers at king's or whatever um it's actually sort of a, a, a beloved thing and it's funny that it's round about the same time i mean just before world war one 
a little bit after where there was quite a lot of sort of thinking about there was like a last gasp of, of spiritualism and there was all these people because of the horrors of world war one you know wanting to to communicate with with their dead and um and it, and mr james like everyone was very traumatized by the death toll of, and it was and he was never quite the same after world war one but um and i just think of all those sort of cambridge and um you know public school authors like benson and so forth and they created a sort of cozy thing is almost like a sort of it is now so established in our culture and it's now so exported everywhere you know including japan and that there's a sort of coziness to it um and the whole idea of you know oh why do people like to be frightened and everything which is sort of endlessly diverting um and what is it about ghost stories in in the uk and christmas and you look at it and it actually goes back a very long way and um, you know um and you even see peeps you know mm. having the, the the drummer of tedworth being read to him on christmas day and it, you know it goes back even further than that so mm. it seems to be very established in england this idea of coziness um fireplaces you know warmth friendship i think friendship is very important and that's also again what mr james was very good at understanding yes yes yeah. and so i i mean obviously that's 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 very different from careering around graveyards and asylums uh trying to uh, record things but but yeah i mean i don't know what else to say really i mean that's no it's it's um it's a long established tradition as you say isn't it i mean you know I mean, shakespeare refers to to a winter's yes. tale which is after yeah. all a, you know that, that is a winter's tale is a story of of sprites and goblins as as it says yeah yeah text. and and i think exactly yeah yeah I th- which was think... james picked up yes yes yeah um, uh, and i think yeah. that idea of uh, you know the the rituals around writing those uh, against the rituals of of the st- the ghost haunting is an interesting well i think so much about this is about exposition and about so what people's favorite kind of ghost stories is that a, a, an event will happen a ghostly event will happen and then someone will go and dig up something or find in an archive something that completely proves it and people people absolutely love that uh, it's very satisfying and the whole idea of exposition is so interesting i think if you're a writer i mean one is always dealing with exposition uh, and and then you get to people like robert aikman who can almost sort of do away with it and somehow manage this sort of um balancing act of of, of almost not needing exposition or having a weird relationship with exposition exposition but uh uh yeah yeah it's it's uh, it's it's an endlessly fascinating subject i think that's the thing and 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 uh and there is such a a breadth of work to draw on that you know e- e- even a book such as yours with a, <laughs> with a subtitle uh, foisted on you as it might have been 500 yes 
it yeah. really can only ever touch the surface of of, uh, of of what this is looking into, isn't it? But but look, yeah, yeah. You know, the back of your book has, for example, the Guardian saying a highly enjoyable at brackets and disturbing close brackets work. Um, yeah, literary review saying lively and absorbing. It, it's it's no surprise that this book was first published in 2012 yeah and is still easily available to buy whereas a lot of ghost books come and go very quickly in fact also available as an ebook i think isn't it is it a large large print and yeah the, yeah. the one thing it isn't is um a uh, audible book so that surprises me but maybe who knows maybe in the future you'll have so. to find out who owns the rights you or them <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i was always surprised it's sort of just it was just in that period about 2012 where the audiobook hadn't really taken off and mm. it just sort of somehow it sort of missed out but who knows maybe yeah but i think that that is the most telling aspect is the fact that the after eight years and counting um a natural history of ghosts is still in print and is still available to buy and i would highly recommend anybody to go and find a copy my thanks to roger for taking the time to join me and talk about his fascinating book a natural history of ghosts is published by penguin books and I've put links down in the show description below so that you can go off and order yourself a copy if you do not already have one. I would highly recommend it. Many thanks for joining me. Please remember that all of the Folklore Podcast and Folklore Podcast Book Club content is completely free to listen to, to watch and to enjoy. If you'd like to support us in this venture to keep this content going, then do please consider visiting our Patreon page where you can find exclusive extra content for a small monthly donation, or visiting our website www.thefolklorepodcast.com where you can make a one-off donation. If you're not able to assist us financially, that's absolutely fine. Do please just share our content on your favourite social media platforms so that you can bring in new audiences to enjoy the programming that we put out. Thanks very much for watching. I look forward to seeing you all again soon.